You're listening to 3CR Radio. And the federal government is running a secretive review into religious freedom that activists fear will result in legal changes that will widen provisions to discriminate against LGBTI folks. On the line, we have Junkie Media's Rob Stott, who recently wrote an article about the review. Welcome, Rob. Hi, guys. Hi, Rob. Hey, Rob, so can you tell us about the secretive nature of the review? <laughs> sure. Yeah, they are, they are a bit secretive. So this is, uh, these hearings are in addition to the public submissions that anyone is allowed to make to this inquiry. So people can write in and, and give their two cents on the issue. But on top of that, Philip Ruddock and, and the rest of the panel have been going around the country holding these private hearings. Uh, where there'll be, there's no recording devices, there's no transcripts, it's, you know, whatever happens in the room stays in the room. Uh, but I've spoken to a couple of LGBTI groups who have appeared before these private hearings who have been pretty concerned that uh, they faced what they called uh, hostile questioning um, from Philip Ruddock. They felt that the inquiry was, or the line of questioning they were, they were being given felt as though it was designed more to entrench discrimination rather than reduce discrimination. Yeah, the line of questioning seemed a little sketchy. Um, and Ruddick's sort of demeanour is, I, I, I don't know how to, um, it was kind of a bit off the way he would introduce a line of questioning by saying, uh, you know, let me be a bit mischief, you know, mischievous here, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I put some questions to Philip Ruddock and he sort of, he said, you know, he, he was essentially acting as a devil's advocate, you know, asking questions shouldn't be taken to mean that he necessarily agrees with the statements that he's making in the question. But the uh, LGBTI groups that I spoke to who spoke in front of the, um, in front of these private hearings, particularly the earlier private hearings, they felt very uncomfortable about it. Whether that was because Philip Ruddock didn't adequately explain what he was trying to do or whether he was just, you know, being himself. Uh, it's, it's not entirely clear, but certainly the people who have been in these hearings were very worried about it. Mm-hmm. Rob, you interviewed Suzanne Eastwood from the ACT government's advisory committee on LGBTI issues, and she funded the review, and she said some pretty alarming things to you about what she thinks this review is intended to do. Can you elaborate on who she thinks is being targeted? Yeah, so, you know, obviously this, the inquiry uh, was instituted off the back of the marriage equality legislation that passed at the end of last year. And this is basically to placate the government conservatives who wanted more of those, you know, religious freedom provisions to be put in the final bill and that failed. And so this inquiry has been designed to kind of placate them. In terms of the, the questions or in terms of the fears that are coming out of this, they, uh, Suzanne sort of said to me, she felt that this extended well beyond discrimination against LGBTI people. You know, if, if you really want to take this to its logical conclusion, if church-run businesses or church-run schools are allowed to discriminate in employment against, say, a, a, a gay teacher or a gay nurse, they could also discriminate against, you know, people who have been divorced, people who live in de facto relationships, mm-hmm. uh, single mothers. You know, th- there's a whole range of things that are, you know, not in keeping with the teachings of the Bible that if you follow the logic, the conservative logic to its logical conclusion, uh, you know, the discrimination provision could really be widened to capture a huge number of Australians. Are you alarmed that Philip Ruddock is chairing this review? I mean, he was Attorney General in the Howard years when uh, marriage was redefined as being between a man and a woman. Yeah, look, I, that, it's certainly bad optics. I mean, there's no doubt that Philip Ruddock is very well qualified to do this. He was the form, He was the Attorney General for a very long time. Uh, he was the Attorney General 
specifically outlawed same-sex marriage in 2004. He has given plenty of interviews since then saying he doesn't regret that, he doesn't resile from that. And so it's certainly worrying from, from that perspective. I have also spoken to some other LGBTI advocates since I published uh, that story who said who have appeared before the inquiry since then, and they felt that Philip Ruddock had softened his tone a little bit. Whether that was in reaction to some of the public criticism he's been receiving is not clear. Um, but they felt that the conversation was much more constructive. And I have to say, even the people I spoke to before then, they did say that they felt Philip Ruddock was quite pleasant, the conversation was pleasant, but they were still very concerned by the line of questioning. So it, it's not quite clear exactly what Philip Ruddock wants. Um, and part of the problem with that is because we're not allowed into these hearings. You know, We don't know what's happening in there because they won't allow us to read transcripts or listen to recordings. And so why the secrecy around it is really worrying. Why, why um, is that? Well, that the extraordinary. Says, yeah, the government says it's to allow people to speak freely and frankly. You know, I've obviously spoken to the LGBTI groups there, but we also know that this inquiry is heard from a lot of religious groups. The really worrying thing is what are those religious groups saying behind closed doors that they don't feel comfortable saying in public? You know, I think it's not out of the realms of, of, of reality to think that some of these religious groups might hold some pretty uh, archaic views that they don't feel comfortable saying in public, and these private hearings might give them a chance to say that to say you know the things that they really believe and that's worrying so you know i think we'll have to see what happens when it all comes out in the wash and when the inquiry the final report you say that ruddick is relatively qualified to to chair this panel but what about the rest of the panel oh it's a good panel there's um you know you've got rosalind croucher from the australian human rights commission you've got uh, father frank brandon who is a catholic priest but was also a yes voter mm. um you've got uh, the Dean of Bond University, Annabelle, uh, oh, her surname escapes me at the moment. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, it's certainly Bennett? a very well, Annabelle Bennett, Annabelle Bennett that's it, yeah. Uh, certainly a very well qualified panel. One of the concerning things, though, is that, that there actually isn't a member of the LGBTI community on the panel. So, a Rosalind Croucher, for example, from the Human Rights Commission, you would expect her to stand up for, for queer rights pretty strongly, but she herself is not a member of the community, and, and mm-hmm. that's, that's really concerning. And I know a lot of leaders in the community have expressed that concern that, you know, there just isn't a member of our community there to represent us. That's pretty unjustifiable, isn't it, on the government's behalf? I mean, if they're, if they're interviewing people about what can be done to broaden anti-discrimination provisions, you know, against the, the queer community, it seems just unfathomable that there wouldn't be a queer person on the panel. I mean, there doesn't even seem to yeah. be a belief in tokenism here. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, that is absolutely baffling. Um, as I said before, this, uh, this panel, this Religious Freedom Review was put in place to placate the Conservatives. And so I think everything that is said, uh, either by the panel or through the panel, has to be viewed through, through that lens. So it's not surprising that there are no queer members of the community on the panel, but uh, mm. it's certainly disappointing. The Conservatives have only come up with this, this, this religious freedom rubbish since the, the advancement of LGBTIQ rights. Yes, it, it, it's... They've taken uh, a leaf out of the U.S. playbook, essentially. You know, when, we, when, when marriage equality was legislated in the U.S. a few years ago, the conversation very quickly shifted to this idea of religious freedom and religious rights. That is everything from providing birth control, um, you know, the right to discriminate in employment, and then the conversations around bathrooms and gender-neutral bathrooms mm. and that sort of stuff. That is coming to Australia. There's no doubt about it. That is the next leaf out of the playbook for the for the religious right here. The you know Corey Bernardi's Conservatives, which Lyle Shelton is now a part of. Uh, that's where they're headed for sure. 
Rob, what's the Prime Minister saying about this review? I imagine it's not planned real well and his electorate of Wentworth. Um, the PM's not saying much about it at all, to be honest. He is just letting it kind of play out. He, uh, you know, I've spoken to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet a few times over the last few weeks to, because they are, that is the department that's overseeing this, and they are essentially just happy to let it run its course. But you're absolutely right. Wentworth voted overwhelmingly in favour of marriage equality last year. So you'd have to imagine that at least the PM's local constituents aren't going to be happy about any of these, uh, you know, religious freedom changes should they come in. Is this just another way of getting the Patterson bill through uh, via the back door? Is certainly what government conservatives are hoping for. Everything that Philip Ruddock has apparently said in these hearings is that it is not about widening discrimination. It's simply about affirming Australia's current understanding of discrimination. Um, if if nothing changes as a result of uh, this review, then you can bet that government conservatives will be very, very disappointed and they'll make that disappointed disappointment known very publicly. So, you know, I think we'll have to wait and see what actually is recommended by the review in a couple of months. Uh, until then, it's all just speculation. Rob, what can people do from the LGBTIQE and allied communities do to try and influence this review? Uh, well, if you, if you haven't made a submission yet, I'm afraid it's too late. The, the, yeah, the window for submission closed last week, I think. But what you can do is keep an eye on it and keep talking about it. There is going to be much more of this in the news. Uh, when the review is handed down, that's when we'll have a chance to kind of act. That's when you know, any of these changes uh, to religious freedom provisions are going to have to pass Parliament, and that's going to require a lot of lobbying from both the yes sides and the no sides, and that's where people can get involved. That's when you, you know... That's where you donate to parties if you believe in their causes. That's where you write letters. That's where you make phone calls. And that's where you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. Rob, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR. It's been great chatting. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Rob. The Sundays there with their classic skin and bones. It is 4.39. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James and Yvette. Mm -hmm. And we had Tim Minchin in there as well. Yes, with the Pope song, the very profane Pope song. Um, but on the line, we are joined by Robin Kennedy. So she's part of the committee that curated the exhibition 40 Years of Queer Art, Subversion and Rebellion, is presented by First Mardi Gras to commemorate 40 years since the street protest that became Mardi Gras. Hi, Robin. Hi, Robin. Hi. How are you going? So great uh, to have well, you on board. You. Robin, what's your connection to the First Mardi Gras? Well, uh, I was there. Wow. <laughs> And what was it like? Uh, not good. Really? <laughs> uh, well, uh, yes. A lot of people don't know about the history of Mardi Gras. Way back in 78, 40 years ago, things were very different for our community. And on the night of the first Mardi Gras, which was actually in June uh, in 78, not in summer, 24th of June, 78, the marches were actually violently attacked by police, beaten up, arrested, thrown into paddy wagons, uh, taken to police stations and charged with a series mm. of offences. And had their names and addresses published in the Sydney Morning Herald. Yes, that's That must right. have been devastating. Uh, it was very devastating. Uh, 40 years ago... Things were a lot different and people had genuine reasons uh, to be afraid of it becoming publicly known that they were gay or lesbian. And so being outed in that way was extremely destructive 
to their personal lives. And I guess the biggest fear was that, you know, homosexuality, for example, was illegal in New South Wales in 1978, as it was Mm. pretty much everywhere in the country except Mm -hmm. South Australia. Mm, That's right. Uh, The law in New South Wales didn't change until 1984. So six years after the first Mardi Gras. That's right, yeah, six Mm. years. Robin, to the exhibition, could you give us some examples of how the works visualise politics? Yeah, there's quite a lot of examples. Uh, We were lucky enough to get uh, 27 LGBTIQ artists contributing to the exhibition. So it's very varied from fairly um, plain, I suppose, traditional painting styles to the more abstract. We have some very, very vibrant works. We have wall hangings very small pieces to extremely large pieces. Uh, There's a lot to see. There's an amazing diversity. But in terms of politics, we have a couple of works, uh, photography works, going back to 78. And these were taken by uh, 78ers who were involved in all of the events of 78. So we have Digby Duncan and Sally Colchin, who are well-known photographers, with how we have their works. And that just really shows uh, some of the things that were going on at the time, the marches, uh, the meetings to make decisions about what our next activity was going to be to fight the charges. We also have works relating to the marriage equality debate. So we have some works by Lisa Anderson, which are really visually stunning. They're these huge uh, wall hangings that feature three brides in different poses. So it's actually, it's supposed to be a woman, but if you look closely, you can see it's a man um, in a white bridal dress with a big uh, blonde wig. And if you look closely at them, you can see just the conflicting emotions uh, about the whole Im- issue of marriage equality. Mm. Um, because marriage, I guess, for some of us, was not the top of our agenda when we were fighting for much more basic rights. So it's a very interesting piece. We also have another one by an artist called Mystery Carnage, which is quite, quite amusing, quite satirical. It's a photo of herself... And on her forehead, it says, how are you? And then on her chest, it says, I'm fine, thanks. But she's (laughs) surrounded by sharks and snakes and swords and daggers. (laughs) So that one is very much about the emotions uh, that our community went through um, Mm. around the, the marriage equality debate. Robin, to what extent does the exhibition explore sex? Because that was a topic that was certainly missing from the marriage equality debate, but mm. wouldn't have been missing in, in, in discourse in 1978 around the LGBTI community. Mm. Yeah, uh, we have a number of pieces um, that explore sex and also s- sensuality. Um, I think probably sensuality is really strong in the exhibition. Uh, So we have works from William Yang and Luke Hardy that are really, really beautiful photography works, very sensual. Uh, We have some works from Tina Fivash. You've probably heard of her. She's been around for a while. 
And her works, again, are, are great. They're really satirical. So what she's done is appropriated the image of the 50s woman. So in the 50s house dress with the with the high heels and the apron and one of the images has two of these housewives ravishing each other on a kitchen table. <laughs> wow. <laughs> with the toaster next to them and the egg beater on the floor. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> are, they, are they wearing white? Or <laughs> no, or they've nothing? got their 50s house dresses on. Oh, okay, of course. <laughs> and there's an artist I really, really like um, called Kim Lutweiler, who was a finalist in the Archibald Prize uh, last year. And her work, again, is really incredibly sensual. There's one work called Sam and Mon that I actually wanted to buy, but unfortunately someone beat, beat me to it. She has this amazing ability to convey emotion with just a few brush strokes so in this particular painting just a few brush strokes suggests an amazingly intense intimacy between the two women that are depicted in the painting mm. it's also a really incredibly visually striking painting in terms of the colors used and it's actually the image we've been using to promote the exhibition. Are, th- are themes around feminism evident in m- many of the works? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. There's a couple of ones um, I'll just draw your attention to. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the members of our organising group, Sarah Gibson, has two works in the exhibition and they both have the subject in the paintings wearing a pussy hat. So you might recall last, I think it was last year, the objections to Donald Trump's pretty awful remarks about women and pussies. And Mm -hmm. there was a very large march. The Women's uh, March. That's right, where women wore pussy hats. Mm -hmm as a statement against the sexual objectification of women. So these two paintings have their subject in their pussy hat. And there's also a really interesting older line drawing, charcoal drawing by Liz Ashburn. It's quite reminiscent of, say, a Michelangelo male nude. But in this case, the, the figure is a woman. So that... Really, it's a statement about uh, reclamation of that space of women present being the the strong, bold image that it is in that particular drawing. So it's not necessarily presented as a sexualized or hypersexualized image. No, not sexualized no. at all, but a very muscular, strong mm-hmm. figure, but clearly a woman because the figure has breasts. Mm-hmm. Robin, I'm fascinated by your experiences at the first Mardi Gras, and obviously you've seen what Mardi Gras has evolved into. How would you rate Mardi Gras today? Do you think we're in some ways victims of our success that's become so commercially focused? Yes and no. Um, I know people do talk about the commercialisation of Mardi Gras, 
And to some extent that's true, but I think it needs to be recognised. There's, there's two things about that. One is that without sponsor support, the Mardi Gras wouldn't happen. It's simply too expensive to stage. There'd be no party, there'd be no parade, there'd be no festival. So sponsors do make a huge difference to being able to stage the festival. The other thing I think is that I actually don't have an objection to sponsors having a profile because I think it conveys a positive message that these are corporates that support our community uh, because many of these corporates have very, very strong internal um, pride committees, diversity committees. I was actually talking to someone about this yesterday and it's these uh, organisations, these companies are really putting their money where their mouth are. So it's a bit more genuine than just trying to get the pink dollar. They actually have extremely good internal policies to support their LGBTIQ staff. And it's interesting, would they have those great policies if the first Mardi Gras hadn't have happened? So it takes uh, us full, well, yes. full circle, doesn't it? <laughs> mm. I actually think we wouldn't have in, we wouldn't have had more Mardi Gras if we hadn't been attacked. Really? Uh, on that first night, because it politicised mm. what we were doing. Uh, it was actually supposed to be a street party, even though it was the commemoration of the Stonewall riots. But by attacking us uh, so violently, arresting so many people, and then continuing to do that over a period of three months... Uh, because every time they staged they dropped the charges rally, more people were arrested. So I think that whole sequence of events is what led a lot of strength to the campaign for equal rights, uh, the repeal of oppressive legislation, and certainly fueled... Mardi Gras to happen the following year and then of course the rest is history. So it sounds like the police and the state government were threatened by queer people congregating in public. Well that's right they well what not just queer people the the act the legislation that uh, was in use at that time was a very oppressive act called the Summary Offences Act which police used to detain and arrest people um because they thought a breach of the peace might occur. Uh, it's the kind of thing you might have expected to see in, uh, you know, apartheid South Africa. Uh, it was that oppressive. But I think the, because of the campaign that happened during the rest of 78 against, uh, against the charges and also around the issue of the right to peaceful public assembly. That was a really strong issue, and it brought in the left uh, to support the campaign for uh, rights, equal rights. So we had trade unions, women's movements, students' groups, uh, those types of sectors come in 
and be part of the ongoing rallies that took place. Robin, the exhibition began yesterday and it's running mm-hmm. to the 8th of March. So That's can we right. tell our listeners where they can view? Yep. This? Okay. Uh, it's in Paddington in Sydney at a gallery called Combers Street Studios, which is 5 Combers Street, Paddington. And uh, you can jump off a bus uh, on Oxford Street and just walk down Combers Street. Robin, it's been fantastic going down memory lane and talking to someone who was actually at the first Mardi Gras. It's just awesome to hear your enriched experiences and just fantastic that you're still connected to the organisation and involved in this great exhibition, Mardi Gras, Mm. 40 Years of Subversion and Rebellion. Great stuff. Okay, great. Are you in Sydney? If you are, you should come and look. We're in Melbourne, but um, I'm sure there might be a few people heading up soon. So. Well, if they are, you really should check it out. We've had fantastic feedback um, from the exhibition uh, from last night's opening. and uh, Oh, right, Wednesday night's opening, that's mm-hmm. right. Uh, we had about 200 people at the opening and terrific feedback on the night. Great stuff. Robin, thank you so much for joining okay, us. Thanks so thanks. much, Robin. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Robin Kennedy there. It is 4.54 and this is Talking Heads. Nothing but flowers. Run 3CR. I really want to see some of the pieces in that exhibition.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.